Well, good morning, everyone. I think at this point you guys know who I am, but if not, I'm Brian the intern. And you may be asking yourself three weeks in a row, my gosh. And, uh, and on a serious note, the reason why I'm up here this week is because Pastor Sean had a very close family member whose health declined rapidly in the recent weeks. And so the first week I was up here, I was scheduled to be up here. That was part of the plan. And since I was already in 2 Corinthians and was already kind of studied up, when this family emergency came up and he had to take some time off, it just made sense that I just kept rolling with it until he comes back. He should be back very soon. If you have any questions after the service, the elders, myself, and other leaders will be up front here at the sanctuary, please come up and talk to us. We also have people that will be out in the coffee shop. Any questions at all, please talk to us about it. Please ask us, because the last thing we want to do is look like we're trying to hide something. Like we're getting ready to read from Paul here. He says he preaches in openness and in boldness so that your conscience can determine whether or not he's telling the truth. And so in the same way, if you've got any questions, come up and ask us, because we're, we're an open book just waiting to be read by you. So that being said, we're moving into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and this is a very, very, very awesome kind of conclusion to the first three chapters that we read, and he starts kind of continuing on on some very deep theological principles, but right now he's going to start off with closing out those first two chapters. And so the first six verses that we're getting ready to read is going to be a review of first or 2 Corinthians 2 and 3. But that being said, even all of chapter 4, if you could be summed up, you can find what chapter 4 is talking about in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. And that's the portion where it talks about God being or providing comfort to everyone. And so in the same way we were comforted, we provide comfort to others. And we're going to see that that's the main kind of, I guess you would say, position of this chapter as he's moving forward, is he's going to explain, we talked about last week about how we're being, we're demonstrating the glory of Christ from degree to degree in maturity. Now Paul tells us how we demonstrate that glory and how that glory is presented to the world and in what ways God uses us to present that glory. But that being said, sometimes some of the truths we're going to talk about today can be very difficult for some of us to kind of take in and really live out. And the reason why is because it's easy to say, God provided me comfort, so I'm supposed to comfort someone else. It's not so easy to do that when you're in the midst of the hardest trials you've ever been through in your life. And an example I like to give is uh, recently, I got nine kids, if you didn't know, and despite making me insane, our youngest little baby girl named Clara, she was born and she was in the NICU, and many of you guys prayed for her. And uh, we got to see tremendous healing. But during that time, it was a difficult time of trial and hardship because even though now I can look back and see everything turned out fine, going through it, the night she was born, the nurse pulls you aside and says, hey, your baby's got a 50-50 shot of making it. And then from there, when she's doing good, 
they look at you and they say, hey, don't get too used to this because the other shoe's going to drop and she's going to crash hard. And so during that time, there was a constant state of anxiety, a constant state of fear, a constant state of peril that we felt like we were in as husband and wife. And it was easy for us to want to kind of withdraw into ourselves and block everyone out and say, nope, we got to batten down the hatches. We got to take care of our own right now. But what we found out is that the ministry, you want to get that. Oh, he's got it. (laughs) But the ministry that we had as an opportunity and as a result, we were able to see so many lives changed for the glory of God. And I think the reason why is what we're going to find out here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So starting in verse 1, he begins it off with a therefore. Now, I'm sure you've heard many preachers say, preachers say if there's a therefore, you've got to find out what it's there for. Well, it's because he's calling back all the way back up to, we want to go to chapter 3, and in verse, I want to say it's chapter 3, verse 6, if I'm looking correctly, but I may not. But he, he mentions about the ministry, and you'll see it behind me. I got on a slide there. The, uh, yeah. 3.6, this is where the first six verses are a review of the last two chapters. And so just by doing a simple look at the language and a look at what Paul is saying, you can see how he's bringing those two chapters to a close and proving a major point, not only about his ministry. We remember, right, chapter 2 was about a restoration of relationship. Chapter 3 was about the glory of Christ in that image and how the new covenant brings about that glory and how we're a reflection of that glory. And so in chapter 4, he starts off, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, what he's talking about lose heart there, I think a lot of times we can look at that and tend to misinterpret what he's saying. He's not saying like he's getting burnt out. He's not saying that he is getting dismayed necessarily by the ministry. The term lose heart is very specifically defined as fleeing from a responsibility because of the challenges that it presents. And so if you were to look that word up in the original language, it would very specifically be talking about almost like a form of cowardice. When faced with oppression, you lose heart, you turn, and you flee. And so Paul is saying here, and he's setting the stage saying, we are not going to give up on this ministry that we have because of the oppression that we end up facing. Moving on to verse 2, he says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And that point there, and kind of like what we talked about in the prayer before and what I was talking about with Sean, what Paul is saying is that my actions are open for everyone. And so you can judge us and we're so confident in the way we proclaim the truth and the way we present ourselves, we trust that your conscience will give you the right answer about us. Now remember, he's taking on, in the enemies that we saw last week, he's taking on people that have credentials that show up with a letter and they say, hey, look, we are, uh, we are preachers of the gospel. And he's taking on 
people that are trying to taint the gospel of Christ with legalism. And so these two words he uses here, cunning or to tamper, you'll see him use cunning later in chapter 13 when he's talking about how Eve was deceived by Satan. And so he's basically saying, we're not trying to deceive you. We're not trying to pull you away from the relationship with God. And then also he's not going to tamper with God's word. Tamper means to water down. It basically means to dilute. And so He's running himself in comparison to his enemies where he is open. He has nothing to hide, unlike his enemies who are coming basically like the serpent into Eden to deceive them, to affect the relationship with God and to water down that message of grace and truth that Paul brings. And so that's, and that's what exactly what legalism does. It takes the idea that grace isn't enough and ends up turning into and watering it down to where, yeah, you're under grace, but you still got to follow this line. You still got to follow this rule. And that, as a result, that pulls us out of, I don't, I don't want to say pulls us out of relationship because I think that's the wrong word, but it affects our relationship. It impacts our relationship with God because we go into that performative mindset where uh, Old Testament Israel was kind of in. And they, had, they were under a idea called retribution theology and what that meant is, if I do these good things, then good things will happen to me. And if I do these bad things, then bad things will happen to me from God. God is going to basically pay in kind to the deeds we act. And, and we still hear that kind of theology a little bit in the church, but even amongst non-Christians as well, because they will come and they say, well, as long as you're a good person, everything is fine. And that's that belief you're somehow going to be good enough to get into heaven. You're somehow going to be good enough to earn your way in. And that waters down the true act of grace that Christ performed on the cross. Because through that sacrifice on the cross, we have to come to the realization that I was never going to reach that. I was never going to be there, no matter what I performed, no matter what I did. And so Paul is coming against that ideology head on and saying they're watering down the grace of God with their teaching and they're deceiving you in the same way that Adam and Eve were deceived in the garden. And so then he goes on to say, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so Paul is saying, basically, that it is not a judgment against his message because these people don't believe him or these people don't trust him. Instead, it is more of a judgment on their character. It is more of a judgment on the type of person they are. If they are not receptive and open to the true gospel, that says more about them than what it says about Paul. And so what he's trying to tell them there is that whether or not they believe in Paul's message is not Paul's real concern because their hearts are veiled. They've been fooled by the enemy. They follow the God of this age. And the God of this age is a direct reference to Satan, to the enemy, to our classical spiritual, that evil person that tries to get us away from Christ, that tries to draw us and pull us away from the gospel. And so their hearts are veiled kind of like 
what we talked about last week, that veil language brings us back to chapter 3, and we see how through the law, at most, the Israelites only had a partial understanding because the glory of God was veiled, and that was represented through the veil that Moses wore. Now through Christ, since that veil has been lifted, we can see, as Paul says here in verse 4, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now that we can know Jesus, we see the full glory of God. We are able to experience and know that full glory that is available to us. But those who are still outside of Christ, those who have not come to accept him as their savior, are like the Old Testament Moses. Their faces are veiled and is preventing them from understanding and knowing what the true gospel is. So in verse 5, he says, For we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for, for Jesus' sake. And the idea of him being a servant there for Jesus' sake is basically he's telling the Corinthians, I am a slave of Christ. And we already kind of discussed that earlier with uh, chapter 3, I want to say verse 14 or 15, where he is being led triumphantly following Christ as a defeated opponent. And now he's saying, as a slave of Christ, I've basically been put on loan to the Corinthians for your service. And so he's never, he's never working out of his own kind of, he's never working out of his own motivation. He's always motivated by the gospel of Christ. And so that makes him a servant of Christ. And if that servant to, brings him to the Corinthians, he's still going to go to them as a servant, not as basically a letter bearer, someone seeking commendation, someone seeking power. And then in verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I like this verse here in ending this kind of little section of his review, saying, lit, for God said, let light shine out of darkness. That is a direct callback to creation. And then it also may be kind of a callback to Paul's conversion. Because remember in Acts 9.3, when he was going into Damascus and he got hit, or confronted by Jesus, I shouldn't say he got hit. He kind of got hit. But he got confronted by Jesus. It came in a bright light. It blinded him. It says he fell down and it actually says he fell down violently, kind of in the same way that uh, that young boy Jesus healed with who was a demon-possessed and it said it would throw him down and try to throw him into fires. That same word is used to describe how Paul fell down on his way in Damascus. So he was hit violently by this blind or blinding light to let the light shine out of darkness, but then also it ties us back into his use of cunning and tying back the deception that these false teachers are bringing is the same deception that came in the beginning part of Genesis, and it is only through God's creative power that we're able to overcome that. And we actually see that in chapter 5 is that famous verse, I want to say it's 517, where Paul says, we are a new creation. And so for Paul, the gospel carries with it a creative power that is basically the same creative power that we see at the beginning of Genesis, but instead of being a total physical kind of 
transformation, it is an internal recreation of who we are and what we are. And we'll actually see that further down as we get into his next part because he starts moving into discussing what is our role? How do we show this glory? Because he said, it is for his God who's let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So basically what he's saying there is we've received that new creative power that basically got rid of the darkness and now we are demonstrating and we're reflecting, kind of going back to the end of chapter three before, we are reflecting that glory. How is that done? And that's where we get into verse 7 here, and, and we start getting into some really good stuff, guys. But we have his treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And now we see Paul imagining himself as a jar of clay. That's a very, very kind of, at least in my opinion, a very important analogy that he uses there because a jar of clay is very fragile, it's very weak. There isn't nothing real special about it. You might be able to mold it and make it look somewhat good, but it doesn't, it doesn't appear to be anything special. When you see a jar of clay, you see a jar that is just meant to hold something. And then when we look at Jesus' words in Matthew 23, when he starts talking about the way the Pharisees were, and he tells him, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgent. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness." We got to remember, Paul used to, that used to describe Paul. Paul used to be a Pharisee. He was the whitewashed tomb. He was the one that presented himself. And in fact, when you look at the way Paul present, was presented in Acts, in his pre-conversion and his conversion, based off of what we see in 2 Corinthians here, and I made a slide for that up behind me. Can you guys read that? Okay, because this seemed from like, well, I'm, I got a competence monitor back there and I can't read anything. But anyways, the point being, when you look at the way he describes his current ministry in 2 Corinthians and what he was before he came to Christ, you can see some direct parallels there on what he was versus what he was or what he is now. So now he's taking on these guys that come around with letters of commendation that was Paul. That was what he was sent to Damascus to flush out the Christians. He asked them, starting in chapter 9, he goes to the Sanhedrin and says, give me a letter so when I go to the synagogue over there, they can trust that I'm here to kill Christians. So he, he was a carrier of that letter of commendation. And then there's also other various kind of similarities where we talked about earlier the light shining out of darkness being the light that converted Paul, and now he is a container, as he says here. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. So where he was before a Pharisee in a whitewashed tomb, where he looked like he contained all kinds of power, but he was empty, 
now he is such a humble vessel that the only way you can give any credit to anything he's done is by what that vessel must be, can be containing, which is the glory of God. And so you can, there's other similarities here, but the most important one I want to get to is verses 8 and 9. For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And so Paul talks about some very harsh treatment that you would normally give to a jar of clay. Because a jar of clay, one of the signifying features is its fragility. But then also, when he talks about being, in verse 8, afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. He used to be the one that was causing those things to other Christians. And now he is the recipient of the very, basically the very persecution that he started at the beginning. Remember, he was the first persecution that drove the Christians out of Jerusalem, and it actually ended up working in the favor of God because it drove Christians to get away from the temple and actually start spreading up or sprouting out communities throughout the Middle Eastern area there. But that being said, Paul was an agent of despair. He was an agent of, and I'm just looking at the other words here, persecution. He was an agent of, or he was a destroyer. And now he is the recipient of that. But the amazing thing is, verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Now he realizes it is that persecution, it is that frailty, frailty? Frailty. As a jar of clay... That is actually what demonstrates the true glory of God because then when that jar gets nicked and that jar gets banged up and that jar gets beaten, that's when you can actually begin to see the contents come out and shine through and pour out. And so he's saying, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body that life is that spiritual renewal. And the only way that spiritual renewal can be contrasted is by living in such a pitiful state. Now, I don't want you to take what I said there way too far because I'm not saying, so we all should be Jesuit monks that sell all our possessions and put on potato sacks and go sit out in the corner and beg for alms to give to the poor. But what I am saying is, is that now... You can see Paul is starting to steer the direction and steer the mindset away from a retribution theology. Because remember, this is a very young church. This is a church that probably hasn't seen a lot of persecution yet, but it's getting ready to. And so he's starting to, through his own self-defense, aim them and show them that this weakness that's going to be perceived by many when the outside world looks at you and sees you get beat down, sees you get maybe even martyred, that is the true demonstration of the glory of God. And he goes on to make that point starting in verse 11. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So Paul there in 11 and 12 basically restates verse 10 two more times, but he gets more specific each time. So in verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. There's two words that the Greeks use, or that Paul uses for death. And they mean two different things here. You have your first one, which shows up in verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. And that's the word necrosin, where we get necrosis. You also see necrosis, necrosis. Necros means basically the physical act of dying. It is the final event. That is the point in which you are dead. But when Paul goes on in verse 11 here, for we who live, and then even in 12, so death is at work in us, he uses the term thanatos. And what that means is not the actual event of dying, but the process of being mortally ill. And so thanatos is the process of dying, the process of, I'm trying to make sure I'm, I'm painting the distinction very clear here. When you die, you experience necrosis. When you are on hospice, you experience thanatos. Does that make sense? When you're basically, you're on your way out, you know you're going to die, but you're still breathing, you're still functioning, you're still normally living, that's thanatos. And then when the moment happens, when the heart stops, when the brain dies, when the breathing stops, that's necrosis. And so what Paul is saying here is that always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, that event, the death of Jesus, is our defining moment. That's what brings us to Christ. That's what brings us in. But after that, he is, for we who live are always being given over to the death of for to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He's saying that as he's living and as he's performing his ministry, he is continually being led down a path that leads to persecution, destruction, martyrdom, things that are not seen as a blessing. But the reason why he does that is because so that the life, the zoe of Jesus, may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so he, he uses the term zoe there, and what that means is a spiritual life. And so you can see the distinction. He's talking about the physical actions he's taken is leading him closer to death. But as a result, a spiritual life is demonstrated and shown through this life of sacrifice and service. And then he firms it up even more in verse 12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And the way that reads can seem like that is a one must come first and the other second. So he has to die for life to work in them. But a better understanding of it is out of my physical death, out of my constant suffering and service to Christ, life is able to come forth and spring out, and that is how the Corinthian church was founded. So he's basically telling them, the things that these guys have used against me as being a symbol of my weakness or a symbol of my 
lack of authority or a demonstration of my failure as an apostle, those are the very things that led to the Corinthian church being formed and found and springing up out of there. And so, just to repeat it, so death is at work work in us, but life in you, if it wasn't for that humble, sacrificial service, there would be no Corinthian church. So for life to be present in them, Paul has to continue down this road of suffering and of pain. And then he says in verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So up until this point, Paul was very focused on his personal kind of suffering. Now he's getting to the conclusion where he's going to start including the Corinthians into this message here. Now starting in verse 13 to explain the I believe and so I spoke, that is a direct reference to Psalm 116 verse 10. And it doesn't give the full message here of what David was talking about in that one verse. But to quote it, David says, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. So that verse is specifically talking about even though David was facing affliction, he still chose to believe and still chose to spoke the truth and, spoke, and basically believe and spoke is show faith in God, even though he was facing a hard time at that moment. And Paul is comparing his plight to the same plight as David when he says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what's been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. And he just didn't add the part there at the end, I am greatly afflicted. But you can see how his affliction... He's tying his affliction to his faith. And then in 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And so not only is he tying affliction to his faith, he's tying affliction to the Corinthians being able to accompany him into glory after he dies. And so if it wasn't for that affliction that Paul is facing, the Corinthians would have no hope of salvation. For it is all for your sake, starting in verse 15, for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And he states it very plainly there. Though he is suffering, though he is persecuted, though he is taking on these false teachers and he is facing much, much affliction, it is all for your sake so that a grace extends more and more to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So then we goes back into in verse 16, we see that phrase again. So we do not lose heart. So there he starts out with it 
and moving on to the end, he's saying, since we are facing this affliction, since we are facing this trial, since we're facing this persecution, we will not lose heart because it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people. And in 17 and 18, I like, it's, it's a perfect ending. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul has a very healthy view of why he's facing so much trouble. And the reason why mainly is because it is through the demonstration that we are nothing but jars of clay that just happen to contain and happen to hold the glory of God. It is through the demonstration of that frailty that others around us are able to see and understand how great and mighty our God is. And that's a hard thing to know, and that's a hard thing to want to try to live out. Because, and it reminds me of when Jesus healed the blind man, and his disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his father? And Jesus' response is a hard response for people to take. Neither sinned, but he was like this for the glory of God. If Christians never got sick, if Christians never got cancer, Christians never had a hard time paying the bills, if Christians never experienced the loss of a loved one, if Christians never had to battle in this world, all the people without Christ going through those things would never be able to experience the comfort of God through us. And again, you may be saying, Brian, you're saying God wants me to be sick and God wants me to go through pain? Well, no. Do you think God wanted Christ to go to the cross? How much did that pain God to see his son up there on the cross? We are now sons by adoption. He doesn't take pleasure. He doesn't say, well, I want this guy to be saved, so I'll just go and have Brian get hit by a car. It pains him to see us suffering like this. But despite that pain, it is the way in which we show his glory and his comfort to those that need to experience his glory and his comfort. And if we're never down in the trenches with those people, then the people God most wants to reach are left alone and defenseless. Going back to my daughter Clara and being in the NICU with her, and going through that experience. Never once did I feel like God told me my daughter's going to be okay. And in fact, that morning, the morning after she was born, I was up all night. Amber ended up having to go in for an emergency C-section, so she was in and out of it due to surgery. Me and her sat by each other, and we looked at each other after the doctor came in and told us, hey, everything's looking good as of right now, but just know, again, they give you those odds. It's a 50-50 shot. They don't beat around the bush in those NICUs. And me and Amber looked at each other, 
and we just made the commitment right there, no matter what happens, we're not going to make any demands, we're not going to make any questions, no matter what happens from this point on, we are going to use it to bring God glory. And as a result, down in Denver, I was able to experience my wife mainly. My wife's more anointed than I would I wish I could ever be. But that being said, the people that we were able to see and touch and the stories we were able to hear and the people we were able to come alongside of and pray and even the salvations that were made possible through that time will always be remembered as a beautiful thing to us. And yeah, that comes with a lot of pain because there was a lot of pain during that time. But that being said, we understood the fact that through our frailty, through our openness, this is what gets us exposed to the people that need to see the, to see the gospel. And then our response to God during this time is what demonstrates that comfort and that grace. So as Paul says back in 14, or actually 15, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of the Lord. That even though we may feel like we're wasting away in our inner self, we can continue to be renewed on a daily basis. And that at the end of the day, every person we bring in the glory. And it reminded me of, you guys seen the video this week, uh, you've, you've heard about Afghanistan kind of falling to the Taliban. And there's that video of the Marine reaching over the wall and grabbing the baby and pulling the baby up and over the wall to get it into the safety of the airport and get that baby back over to America. That is our job. We are down in that fray and we're trying to reach out and we're trying to grab as many people. So at the end, like Paul could tell the Corinthians, we will be presented together up there in the glory of Christ. But for that to be possible, we have to be in that fray. But we can take heart because as he finishes, as we look not into the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And in comparison, this life is but nothing but a light momentary affliction. We know where we're going. We know what our reward is. We know that if a meteor came through this church, we're good. So anything that we have to put up with while we're on this earth needs to be seen in a frame, in a, in a mindset, in an aspect of how am I going to bring glory to God for this or through this? How is God's glory going to be demonstrated through this? Because the things that are seen are transient or temporary. But the more people we can grab and pull up to heaven, that's what's going to determine our eternal happiness in our internal service. That being said, let's close in prayer. Dear Father, we just pray that you guide us this week and show us where others are suffering and also show us where we can shine your glory into that darkness, whether it's in our own lives 
or into other sickness or a combination of both. Lord, we know that you don't take any pleasure in our suffering, but we know that the work of the cross by Jesus Christ took out the sting of suffering and it actually becomes a point of ministry for us to be able to use in our daily lives, not only with our own family, but with those who are watching us. Allow us to be that example. Allow us to show your glory. Allow us to show your grace and allow us to bring your comfort into those environments. We thank you so much for your wonderful word, Lord, and we just pray that you continue to bless us. We pray for Pastor Sean and his family, and we pray that they come back to us soon. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.